fact, it was one of the, the songs that they sang at the very end as the last thought as, as they walked out of the, the temple and the, and the tabernacle um, during those times that they would meet there. And uh, that would be the last thing on their hearts, how great their God was. And by the way, I think it would do you and I a lot of good to often meditate on how good our God is and how great He is. And uh, even though we'll never fully understand His greatness, uh, I believe it does our hearts well to regularly meditate on who He is and uh, to be grateful. I don't think it would be wrong at all for you and I to have a song in our hearts for the Lord about how good He is and how great He is. There was a little song when I was in Sunday school. We used to sing, God is so good. God is so good, God is so good, He's so good to me. He answers prayer. We go through all the verses. And, and you know, I think that, you say, well, Brother Greg, that's a little kid's course. No, no, that's a song in our hearts exalting our God. Oh, what a wonderful God we have today. I hope we don't ever get over that fact. If our hearts ever get cold and calloused to the God that we have, it doesn't take us very long but with getting on our knees and getting in this book to begin to realize how great He is. Uh, there was a fellow years ago in, in college that got up in class, one of the professors, and he said, if you'll read one psalm a day, it'll change your life. Now, I was in the habit as a young man of reading a, a proverb, a, chop, a chapter in Proverbs a day. I'd done that since I was a teenager, and some people had told me that would help me, and it did. It did gave great wisdom during my teenage years and helped me in a lot of ways. When I got into college, this fellow said, if you'll read one psalm a day, it'll change your life. And so I took him up on it, began to read one psalm a day. And I will tell you what, you begin to rejoice. I got such a view of who God was during those times. And every time I come to the psalms and I begin to read those things, I, I, I just get reminded of Him once again. It doesn't take you very long to get in the pages of God's Word before He reveals Himself to you, does it? And it ought to make our hearts, if you're saved this morning... It ought to make our hearts rejoice. It ought to make them overflow. It ought to get to the point where it's so good you can't hardly stand it anymore. And uh, it, it's you ever been there where it's just the joy just kind of bubbles over? That's where the children of Israel are. I mean, they just they just watched their God defeat the mightiest army in the world to separate the the Red Sea for them to walk through on dry land. I mean, we we think, well, we've read that story before. We know that story inside and out. Could you imagine what these people must have been thinking having experienced it? And so they begin to magnify God, and they begin to praise Him in the psalm, a song of Moses that we studied last week. We got done with that, and we find in verse 20 that uh, Miriam and some of the ladies, they get the timbrels out and they begin to dance before the Lord. And again, uh, to a celebratory uh, idea here of magnifying God, and their hearts were just overflowing with the joy that they had for the Lord. Then we get to verse number 22. And I want to say this because um, when I got saved, boy, I'll tell you what, the, 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 it seemed to me anyway, the sky was bluer, the birds sung sweeter, the sun shone brighter. And I'm going to tell you, there was something different. There was Now, not everybody experiences the same thing when they get saved, but I'm going to tell you, there was something different in my life. And uh, you all remember back to the time you got saved, the joy that was there? I, I, that's probably the best way to explain it, the joy that came in. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Boy, what a... What a song uh, old, uh, Newton uh, wrote when he wrote Amazing Grace. 
and uh, the joy that you could hear in those words as he penned those words. You ever, you ever think back to that? And then I, I just want to say this. As we start here in verse chapter 15, verse number 22, life begins to happen. <laughs> and you ever come to the altar and in the middle of a, a powerful revival or powerful preaching, and boy, our hearts are stirred and the Holy Spirit is doing a work, and we come to the altar and tears are shed. And the load is lifted and the heart is at ease. And we've, we've dealt with what God wanted us to do. And then we go out in the workplace the next day, the very next day, and life happens. And it's what happened to the children of Israel. And by the way, before we're too critical of them, we do the same things. We just justify ours. And we criticize theirs. But life begins to happen in verse 22. Let's look at it together. So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea. And they went out into the wilderness of Shur, and they were three days in the wilderness. Now up until this time, they still have provisions from uh, Egypt. But they're three days in the wilderness now. And the Bible says this, they found no water. And when they came to Marah, they could not drink of the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore the name of it was called Marah. And that, that name or that word actually means bitterness. By the way, we get to the book of Ruth. We're going to see that, that again. In verse number 24, and the people, what's the next word here? I'm going to stop there. What were they doing just a few verses ago? They were magnifying God. And if I wanted to put a title on the lesson this morning, it would be mag, from magnifying to murmuring. And I think it's a very important lesson you and I need to learn because we go through the same ups and downs. We go through the same mountaintops and valleys. We go from points of magnifying God and, boy, life is good and the Christian life is full of joy and God is just working in my life and, boy, I just can't believe it. Uh, we've got a great church family and everything's going great. And then the trials hit and life begins. And instead of continuing to magnify God through the valley, they begin to murmur. And uh, the Bible says here as they go on down, verse number 24, they murmured, notice this, against who? Moses. Saying, what shall we drink? By the way, who are they really murmuring against? God. They're saying, Moses, you led us out here. But really, Moses didn't lead them anywhere, did he? Who led them? seems to me there was a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. God led them. So who were they really murmuring against? By the way, we would learn a valuable lesson in this. There's an awful lot of times that we criticize the wrong person. And while we're really murmuring against God, we would never dare do so, so we find another object to murmur to and to murmur against. We need to be careful of this. And the Bible says here uh, in verse number 25, And he cried unto the Lord. The Lord showed him a tree, which when he had cast into the waters, the waters were made sweet. And there he made for them a statue and an ordinance. And there he what? Proved them. Do you think that God knew where he was leading the children of Israel when he led them to Marah? You think God might have made a mistake? Maybe he was just like, ah, let's say, maybe let's have him go over there today. 
Is that the way God led them? No, God knew exactly where He was leading them. God knew what the waters of Mara were like. He made them that way. God was proving them and He was allowing them to go through some bitterness for the purpose of them understanding that what is bitter in our lives can be made sweet by God. And there are times in our life, and I think there are people in this room that could give testimony of this, that there have been things in our life that have been very, very bitter that were made sweet because of what God did in the situation. He did this to prove to the nation of Israel once again. He's testing their faith. He's saying, listen, you, see, you saw me do all those things in Egypt. You saw me destroy the Egyptian army. You saw me come across the Red Sea. I don't know about you, but I would like to think that if I had been in the children of Israel during that day, I think that would be enough for me to trust God. But I'm human just like they were, and apparently it wasn't enough for them, was it? Isn't it amazing how oftentimes we rejoice at what God is doing today, and months later when the valley comes, we forget all about what God did today. We forget all about His goodness and His mighty power being shown, His right hand being given on our behalf, Him fighting the battles for us. We, we, we fail to remember those things. It says in verse 26, And said, If thou wilt... Know, and, and I want you to notice that little two-letter word. Uh, verse number 26, And said, If... And that's a, that's a key word here. If thou wilt diligently hearken to the what? Voice of the Lord thy God. I think that's important. And wilt do that which is right in His sight... And will give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes. I will put none of these diseases upon thee which I have brought upon the Egyptians. For I am the Lord that healeth thee. Now, I'm not a health, wealth, and prosperity preacher. And I'm not going to tell you this verse says that God's will is not for, is for us to not ever get sick. What God is saying here is that if we will obey him. And he was telling the children of Israel, if you'll give uh, heed to me. And you'll obey me during this time that we are in the wilderness here of wandering. He said, I will put my hand of protection upon you. And when you come to bitter waters, I'll make them sweet. When you don't have food, and you'll, we'll see here in chapter 16, I'll provide food. And God was saying, I'm not going to have you go through the same trials that the wicked and ungodly Egyptians are going through. By the way, aren't we glad of a promise that's very similar to that to Christians? And that is that we will not stand in the judgment for our sin the way that the lost people will. He'll, he'll not put that upon us. Well, what a thing to rejoice over. In verse number 27, he says, And they came to Elam, where were twelve wells of water, threescore and ten palm trees, and they encamped there by the waters. And so they're in a place of refreshment. They're in a place where all is well. The water has been made sweet. And I'm sure there were probably some people that uh, were in the nation of Israel during that time, the, the children of Israel at that time, uh, that thought, boy, this is a good place to be. We got 12 wells of water here. We got shade. We got uh, a beautiful oasis, a place of uh, retreat and, and, and just refreshment. And uh, probably thought, well, this is a nice place. Why don't we just settle down here 
And, uh, but God doesn't keep them there, does He? And by the way, there are times that God does that in our lives. We've got to be careful that we don't get too comfortable. We don't get too comfortable. There's always something God has for us. We don't want to just lay down and take our ease and, uh, and eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die kind of mentality. But we want to be ready to do what God has for us to do. And here the children of Israel, they get a, a time of retreat. And as we get to chapter number 16, we see that God's going to take them through some additional testing and proving. And by the way, can, can I, without raising your hands, can we all not give testimony to the fact that there's been times in our life that God has proven us, put us to the test, put us in situations to see if our faith would hold strong, to see if we would continue to trust Him, to rejoice in Him, to magnify Him? Let me ask you this question. When we're on the mountaintop, is God good? Absolutely. When we're in the valley, is God still good? He sure is. While we may not be enjoying the circumstance we're in, we can always magnify Him for who He is. His goodness, His might, His majesty. We get to chapter number 16. I want you to notice some things here. It's been almost a month at this point. Uh, from almost, In fact, to the day, if you read uh, down here, it'll give a date here in just a few moments. Um, in verse number 1, it's literally to the day, it's been one month since they left Egypt. The Bible says, And they took their journey from Elam, and all the congregation of the children of Israel came unto the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. And I just want to say this, uh, that is the actual name of the location. It doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the sinful nature of the nation of Israel. However, we are going to find that this wilderness of sin, or, or, or some of the modern maps have it listed. If you ever go look it up on a modern map, it spells it Z-I-N, Zen. Uh, it's the same place. Sin, and it, was, it was pronounced sin and written sin years ago in the ancient and the modern days. They've uh, changed it to Zen. And, uh, but you'll find this, that the time that they spend in this area is a time that the nation of Israel does get involved in a lot of sin. There's a lot of things that come into their lives. So they go from Elam to Sinai. Uh, the Sinai that's spoken of here in the Bible is, there's a lot of different uh, scholars that uh, differ on where they believe that that particular mountain is, the mountain that God actually used to write the Ten Commandments on. There is a Mount Sinai that uh, is referred to down in the Sinai Peninsula, down towards the bottom. Not a good uh, set of... Uh, facts or things that would prove that that was the Mount Sinai that's mentioned here in the Old Testament. There's a lot of discrepancy on where Mount Sinai is. Um, and, and I think rightfully so. God does this oftentimes in Scripture. Uh, we don't know where Noah's Ark is. We don't know where the Ark of the Covenant is. We don't know where uh, the, uh, a lot of the different things that were used in Scripture. And, and I think God knew that if we had access to those things, knew where they were, that we would work. I mean, look at the things we already worship. In our, in our world today. I say we as a human race oftentimes. Uh, we, we build monuments and we build cathedrals and we build statues and then we take pilgrimages to these places and we think, oh boy, this is a great place and, and we begin to worship the, the, the creation more than the creator, if you will. 
And so I think that there's probably a good reason why God has not made it very clear where this particular Mount Sinai is. Could you imagine knowing where the Mount Sinai was, where God met with Moses? Oh, my. Could you imagine that? And so I think God keeps some of these things from us because He doesn't want us to get lost in the figure of a mountain. Because the mountain is not what is to be exalted here. What is to be exalted here is the Lord Jesus Christ, God Himself. We need to learn to uplift Him. By the way, the disciples made the same mistake, didn't they? You remember on the Mount of Transfiguration? They said, oh, let's build three, three temples or three uh, tabernacles here. Immediately, Jesus was there alone. Why? Because they had their view in the wrong place. God and God alone is to be uplifted. God and God alone is to be magnified. He doesn't share His glory, nor should He need to. And you and I need to make it a part of our lives that we don't magnify things more than God, but we magnify God Himself. So they go from uh, Elam and Sinai on the 15th day, the second month after their departure out of the land of Egypt. So this has been a full month uh, since they've left Egypt. And the whole congregation of the children of Israel, <laughs> isn't that amazing, murmured against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the children of Israel said unto them, Would to God we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the flesh pots, and when we did eat bread to the full, for we have brought us forth into this wilderness, to, uh, for uh, ye have brought us forth into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Verse number three is an important, important lesson for you and I to learn. They've had two problems here in verse number three. Number one, they had a distorted view of their past. <laughs> they had a distorted view of their past. They really think that slavery was to be preferred to wandering in the wilderness. And number two, they had a distorted view of God's will and intention for them. Verse number three, their full belief was this. We had it better in Egypt. And I tell you this, the Apostle Paul spoke about this in the New Testament. He goes through a list of things that he had in his childhood growing up. He said, I, I was a, a, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. As touching the law, he was, he was educated at the feet of Gamaliel. He had all these things going for him. And you know what he said? He said, I count them but dung. I count them but loss. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. The fellowship of His suffering. Can I tell you this? I used to years ago watch as men would come to the chapel services in our Christian school down in Florida. And they would come as evangelists in our church. And they'd sit at our dinner table sometimes, even in our house. And I would hear them give testimony of how they had large music contracts offered to them or large professional sport contracts that were offered to them. And they would make the statement, but I gave it all up. For the Lord, and you could almost hear in their voice, boy, it was such a sacrifice. And I remember as a young person thinking, man, they gave up a million dollar contract for the Lord to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know if they ever intended for it to sound that way, but that's how it sounded to me as a young man. Boy, I had to give up an awful lot for the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, I, I gave up a lot for the Lord Jesus Christ. 
I gave up nights in the gutter in a drunken stupor. I gave up beating and abusing my kids. I gave up all of that. He said, Brother Greg, not every lost person does those things. Can I tell you this? I gave up hell. And I gained everything. Why do we have such a distorted view of what we've given up? I've talked to people and shared the gospel. I've pleaded with them to accept Christ as their Savior. And I've heard statements like this. I just don't want to give up what I'm doing in my life right now. You ever hear that? That's a distorted view. It wouldn't be giving up anything. It would be gaining something. And here's the sad thing. That even we that are saved can get to a point where we look back on the old life and we have a distorted view of it. We think, boy, it was far better back there. I've watched, sometimes firsthand, as people that I've loved and cared about, that name the name of Christ, have gone back to their old life, and sometimes even worse. They've gone back. They've said, my life was far better when I used to live in the world. Can I tell you, that's a distorted view of your past. And it's a distorted view of what God has in store for you. Their view in verse number 3 was that God had brought them into the wilderness to kill them with hunger. Well, God just brought us out here to starve us to death. No. No. God brought the children of Israel there to prove them. To strengthen them. They're getting ready to go into a land that is flowing with milk and honey. But it's a land that is full of giants and garrisons and mighty men of war. And God needs to know that these people going into that promised land, that He's going to just give them. That they have faith to believe that God is going to fight their battles for them. And God is going to give them the land. So He has to prove them. And oftentimes, there are so many things that God has in store for you and I, but He wants to prove us first. Things that are out beyond what we could imagine. Beyond things that we could even, even fathom that He would have for us. You know, I think that one of the great regrets, I think some of the tears that we will be shedding in heaven that God will have to wipe away are going to be tears of regret when we see what God intended for us that we just did not trust Him for. We look at the children of Israel, and I'll be honest with you, my heart hurts for them at this point. I'm thankful they come around and they begin to trust God again, but then we see them fail Him again. And you know, there's one thing about studying the children of Israel in the wilderness wanderings that encourages me. And that is this. God never gives up on them. Aren't you glad of that? Because we do the same thing. And God never gives up on them. Well, we've gone a little bit over in Sunday school, so we'll start a few minutes after here on the uh, next service. But, uh, boy, I love studying God's Word, don't you? 
learning things. I'd, I'd rather look at somebody else that went through the trials and learn from them than to have to go through it myself and learn it the hard way. Sometimes we have to do it both ways, but oh, what a joy. Well, let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, we're so thankful for your word. We pray that you'll bless it and use it. Father, draw our hearts closer to you. Lord, I pray our, our, our fleshly human hearts depart so quickly and so easily from you. Father, would you help us this year to be more dedicated, more consecrated. Help us to keep our, our eyes fastened upon you, that whether on the mountaintop or in the valley, we can magnify you and give you praise for who you are. That we can lift you up. That this world won't see a powerless God that we serve. That even through the valley, we can still have joy and rejoice in who our God is. That people would look at that and they would see, boy, what a great God they have. Father, may we lift you up this year. Bless in the service to follow. May your Holy Spirit guide and direct. And may you empower us and strengthen us. Help our hearts to be yielded and already prepared and open for Him to do His work in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.